I asked the boys, do you think you have, how, much, how many of you think you have free will? And a lot of them put their hands go up. And I say, well, let me ask you a series of questions. How many of these things do you determine? I ask them questions about family background. You know, why are you at Macaulay? How are you at Macaulay? What are, the, what are the situations, what are the circumstances that had to be in place for you to be here versus someone who was born in another part of the world? They quickly begin, it, it begins to destabilize their categories. One of the perspectives that we need to change about the ancient world is seeing Africa as somehow second place or some kind of a backwater region. This is not the way it was at all. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Ridge, a podcast series of the Macaulay School. I'm Lee Burns, head of school. Today we're continuing our examination of the various academic departments at Macaulay. We're taking a slightly different approach in this discussion of the Bible Department. Dr. David Eastman, the Sherrill Chair of Bible and head of the Bible Department, recently published his fourth book. The title is North African Christianity, Turning Points in the Development of the Church, and is receiving positive reviews in academic and religious publications. In this podcast, Sumner Macaulay, Dean of Faculty and Curriculum, and Dr. Sal Musamichi, one of Macaulay's history teachers, talks with Dr. Eastman about the book and examines this important but oftentimes overlooked part of the history of Christianity. They also talk about the Bible department, how we teach biblical subjects to students of many faiths, and why teaching about religion, faith, and ethics is an important part of Macaulay's pedagogical philosophy. This is a continuing series of podcasts focused on the academic disciplines at Macaulay. I hope you've listened to those that have been posted, and you'll continue to listen to new ones that will be posted throughout the remainder of the 2021 year. Now let's join David Eastman, Sal Musamichi, and Sumner Macaulay. Welcome, I'm Sumner Macaulay, the Dean of Faculty and Curriculum here at Macaulay School. We are continuing our podcast series, sitting down with members of various academic departments to hear their sense of what's going on in the fields and how that's affecting how we teach classes here at Macaulay. And today we focus on our Bible department, where we have a particularly interesting twist in that the head of our department, David Eastman, a respected scholar in the field himself, has just published his fourth book, which is entitled Early North African Christianity, Turning Points in the Development of the Church. Dave and I are joined by Dr. Sal Musumesi, who teaches AP World History and has a profound interest in religious history, including having taught church history courses. He's kindly agreed to help me discuss David's book as we use it as a gateway to hearing about the department's overall studies. David and Sal, let me ask you to both introduce yourself and then we'll dive into our discussion. David. So my name is David Eastman. I am uh, the chair of the Bible department here at Macaulay. I'm in my fourth year at Macaulay School. And prior to coming here, I taught for seven years at Ohio Wesleyan University, was chair of religion there, and taught two years prior to that at Yale where I earned my PhD in early Christian history. And I coach middle school baseball as well. Nice. And Sal? And I am Sal Muzumechi. This is my second year at Macaulay. Um, I teach AP World History here, as Sumner noted. Before coming here, I was an associate professor of history and classics at Catawba College in Salisbury, North Carolina, where I also was chair of the history 
department and associate director of the honors program. I also am an assistant coach in our rowing program, and I am helping Dr. Ritchie out with History Day activities this year. Fantastic. So two phenomenal intellects here in the room. Appreciate your spending time. And Dr. Mishbessi, I really appreciate your asking questions that I probably don't yet quite know enough to even ask. So thank you for joining us for that. David, talk to a little bit. What led you to write this book? And how do you see it fitting into other work you've pursued and the overall focus on current biblical research? This book goes back to, I guess, my role as a social historian. And by social historian, I mean I'm interested in not just the top 1% of human history. I'm interested in the other 99%. And I use those terms knowing that they have all kinds of other repercussions now. But the fact is most writers of history are aristocrats bishops, uh, church leaders in the case of Christian history, or emperors, or the, the marketing people for emperor, emperors. But through material culture especially, sometimes we can get gateways into the experiences and the everyday lives of the everyday person. And that's mm. really social mm. history. So text can give us insights, but often textual traditions alone tend to push us toward the upper crust. And so that's where archaeology comes into play. We can see other evidence of, of other people and how they lived. And this particular project goes back to a course that I taught in 2014 and 2015 in Cairo for the Center of Early African Christianity. And that center, a lot of their goal is trying to bring resources for the study of Christianity back to the African continent and help people understand there that it's not a, Christianity is not an, an 18th century colonial import to the continent. It's been there since the beginning. And so they've been offering educational opportunities for students. And so I taught this course twice there and just felt like the material lent itself to an easily accessible book format that could then go farther across the continent. So with, with all due respect to all of my listeners here who are in North America, I didn't write this for us. Mm. I really mm. wrote this for, for people in Africa. And that's the, the target audience in my mind. I think it's going to be useful more broadly but it's really about helping people understand their own history, but wherever you're from, this is our history. And that's another important piece of the book, is emphasizing not just early African history for early Africa, but how these early African thinkers and doers impacted the entirety of Christianity everywhere um, for all the generations since then. So it really begins with kind of a kernel of interest in social history and finding a place in, in Africa that has been talked about, but probably not as much as it should. And then using that as a gateway into helping us see the broader implications of some of these thinkers and doers for Christianity worldwide. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so that was one of the reasons why I was actually really excited that you asked me to uh, take a look at the book. Um, I'm as an undergrad, I double majored in philosophy and religion. And one of my favorite classes was on Paul. You know, so reading Jurgen Becker, E.P. Sanders, really got into sort of more of the the ephemera and the logistics of the everyday that informed that period. And that's really what made history come alive to me. So what I really enjoyed about your text, and, and I do want to uh, sort of get to this background. Can you just tell me a little a little bit about what was happening in North Africa in terms of society and culture? Because really when we in the first world west tend to think of north africa or even africa in general one person comes to mind and that's augustine of hippo and you wait till the end of the book to introduce that 
massive figure. So can you just, for the audience in general, what was happening in Africa during this time that you felt this is really where you needed to jump into the conversation or at least start the conversation? Sure. Yeah, so one of the things that, one of the perspectives that we need to change about the ancient world is seeing Africa as somehow second place or some kind of a backwater region. This is not the way it was at all. So the name of that sea at, just south of Italy is called the Mediterranean, it means in the middle of the land, which means that Rome was on the north side of the middle of the land and Carthage was on the south side of the middle of the land. But so Africa, that north coast of Africa is right there in the heart of the Roman Empire. And Rome and Carthage very famously fought several wars, which Rome won by a very, very slim margin. But um, so Africa is the, it's the breadbasket of Europe. They're providing grain for food for, for Rome and other parts of, of Europe. Uh, culturally, it's so important. So much of what's happening in terms of trade, art, music, it's coming through Africa as much as it is through Rome. And so instead of seeing Rome as this big city and then there were these other little cities out there, we need to understand in this period, Rome is a very large, important city, but Carthage is as well. It's right across the water. And so from that early period, Carthage has a, a significant impact in Western culture, kind of Latin-speaking culture of the time. And that's sort of where we begin. So when, from the sake of Christianity, when we get into the beginning of the third century, the periods of persecution, that's why Africa is one of these centers of persecution when it breaks out, because it's a very important cultural center. And so the, the sporadic attempts to enforce a kind of imperial ideology, they come to Africa very quickly because that's important. You have to get Africa right because if Africa goes rogue on you, then suddenly you don't have food. And so the, the larger implications, all of which come from the importance of Africa at this time in the Roman Empire as a center, not as a periphery. No, it's, so that's really good background information. Do you think a lot of that reason is because you need Carthage because you need North Africa that that's why you have such critical mass in that part of Africa right now because let's face it to a lot of our students who are taking AP world it's about Montemusa it's about other things that have been on the periphery mm -hmm. of Africa that have taken center stage yet what you're talking about um, bringing that sort of population there the part that that's a very important piece of the puzzle not only for Rome but also for that region right and not only do you have the Mediterranean, you have the Adriatic, and you have other parts heading over to the east as well, that you're all going to have to hit Africa in order to go there. Would you say that's a contributing factor as to why you have this critical mass for not only of the issues that you begin to broach in the book, and, and we'll get there pretty quickly, but also just in terms of not only its long, rich cultural tradition, but also intellectually and religiously how they're able to put their mark on the story of Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Carthage really is the, is the other great city of the West. And so much comes out of that. Their technology, their naval technology, which is not inconsequential in the ancient world, um, far surpassed anything in Rome. And so much, uh, their, overall, their, their general technology, city building, those kinds of things we can, we can reproduce from the archaeology of Carthage, they were far ahead of Rome in many of these ways. And if you look at, and thinking strategically, as you said, you can't get east and west of the Mediterranean without passing right by Carthage. So Carthage is a significant strategic point just militarily. And that certainly plays out in much of its history as well, for good or evil, depending on which side it was on. But it, it's, it's, for me, it's a lot of it's bringing us back to, to the time when 
when Romanitas, this notion of Romanness, was just as alive on the north coast of Africa as it was probably even, I would argue, even more so than parts of Italy. Like northern Italy was not very, was much less Roman than North Africa was so, in this period of so time. So you being more specific with like the later Rome as opposed to early Rome at this point? Well, I guess you could say, you're right, there's a fine distinction there. The later period when you have the bar- the invasions from the north and such, but um, it's yeah, Rome and Carthage really are, are the, the two pairs that they need. They're almost like New York and Boston. Sure. They need each yeah. other in some mm-hmm. sense, right? Now, New York may be larger, but New York needs Boston, and Boston needs New York. It's not a great analogy, but I think it gets to some of the point of the, the, the interplay between these two cities in the ancient world. But it is relevant where we are with the Yankees and the Red Sox going for the wild card. I like That's how right. you tied that yes. in there, yes. David. That, that was really nice. So what was going on with christians during this period can you maybe bring to light uh some of the issues that they have been you know facing and then we'll get into some of the movements in your book but how does everything we're talking about provide the socio-cultural backdrop to what was um what the individuals you're interested in are dealing with on a day-to-day um yeah scenario? so so in the roman context we need to think about Roman religion as very conservative. And I don't mean socially conservative. I mean conservative in the sense that Romans looked back at their history with great pride and they saw a lot of success. And so if it's not broke, don't fix it. So in Roman religion, which is, I should also say, is really is not a faith religion. The Romans don't care what you believe. It's about religio, which for them is practice. It's go to the temple, make the sacrifice, do the right stuff. They had a saying, um, I give so that you give. So I give something to the God, they give something back. And that applied individually, but it also applied to the empire as a whole. So one of the important things is maintaining what they call the peace of the gods. You maintain the peace of the gods by doing the right things, by honoring the gods and goddesses in the right way. When these mystery religions come along, of which Christianity is one of them, we could throw Mithraism as another one. When these mystery religions come along, one of the immediate threats they pose is they're pulling people away from the worship of the traditional gods. And over and over again, what we see in some of the martyrdom accounts of Christians is that they are seen as threats, they're, they're seen as threats to the entire, to the security of the empire because they're not honoring the gods, they risk to upset the gods, the gods are gonna punish the empire. And so time after time, when the Roman em, uh, army loses, people are looking for a scapegoat. Well, here you have these people living among you who don't worship the gods. And this is common knowledge. Everyone knows the gods will punish you. And so these Christians and these followers of Mithraism are are like this. They're threats to the empire. So now you have these people living among you who worship a strange god that you don't understand. They only worship one god, which you also don't understand that. You think they're a threat to the empire. You hear that their founder said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So you think they're cannibals. And you hear they call each other brother and sister. And you've heard that they greet each other with a holy kiss, which makes you think there may be incest involved. And there are all these stories going around, and there's no central point for good information. We could argue that there may may still not be a good central point for information, nationally speaking, but back then there's no central point. You hear all these stories, and you begin to think, these people really are dangerous. And if they won't change, then and they threaten our way of life, well, then we have to do what we have to do. And that seems to be at the root of a lot of these persecutions, that they're sporadic until the late third century, arguably. They tend to be sporadic and localized, 
But if you read the account, it's pretty clear that the Roman governors who are saying, offer the, uh, make an offering in honor of the gods or die, they don't care what they believe. They just, they, I think of it this way, like, I want to go to lunch, but I can't go to lunch until you make the sacrifice. So just make the sacrifice. I don't want to kill you. I want to get out of here. And that's often what, where, the, where the, the disjuncture is, is the Roman officials don't understand what the Christians are about. And the Christians don't understand what the Roman officials want them to do. Or they do, but they won't do it, I guess you could say. And that's a lot of what happens in these, these, these accounts. You have this, this conservatism, which really hits a peak in the third century in the time of Cyprian, where you're approaching the thousandth year anniversary of Rome. There's a kind of nostalgia, and things are going really, really badly in the empire. And so there's kind of a heightened awareness of traditional Roman ideas, traditional Roman cult and practices. And the Christians at that point are seen as a real danger because now you have economic problems, you have uh, social problems, you have wars, you have all these things going on, you have famine. It must be the Christians. Yeah. Can you actually talk about that a bit more? Because I've always understood that individual in that time period, like he just had the worst luck. Everything sort of happens during his tenure. He can't make it work. I like what you said about this idea of uh, persecution being localized. I don't think we understand that much. You know, when we tend to think the Romans go out there and they persecute a people, they do it on this mass scale because mm -hmm. of the empire. So one, can you just touch upon this idea of localism? And then two, mm -hmm. can you just go into that part of, you know, Cyprian and what actually happens there? Because he just occupies such a big part of that narrative but we just don't know him here in the west so right. if you're not used to like justo gonzalez and his history of christianity mm -hmm. you really don't hear about this one figure right yeah so part of it is at that time there's really no mechanism for enforcing an empire-wide anything it just takes too long how long does it take to get news from britain to egypt in the absence of the internet or airplanes it, it takes months to get the information and that's why these early persecutions do seem to be very localized. And some of them, I, some of my colleagues who now want to deconstruct some of the stories about Nero, I think they're totally off on this. The, the, the Roman sources are clear about Nero and his, his relationship to the Christians. And we, don't, we can't make too much of that, but something happens there. Other emperors, Decius, Valerian, something happens there. But they can't enforce persecution a thousand miles away. Now that changes with Diocletian at the end of the third century because he divides the empire into four administrative units simply because it's more efficient to have four units rather than one unit. And then he can more effectively have local oversight over persecution. That's as close as we get to an empire-wide persecution, but that's not till probably the 290s. So we do get there eventually, but most of this is local and it could be who knows what stirs it up? Some of the sources suggest that there's some kind of interreligious conflict or jealousy that's behind it. Some of it could just be one neighbor routing out another neighbor. And some of the sources indicate that if a person would come forward and accuse someone else of being a Christian, and then the officials would go through what we might call um, aggressive questioning of, of slaves to find out who else was a Christian. And if you gave up names, they let you go. If you didn't give up names, they tortured you. And so amazingly, all these names appear. And so the, the net just widens. But these all seem to be, I, I think of the Salem witch trials, very similar kind of phenomenon. There's a lot more going on in the Salem witch trials than just concerned about witchcraft. There's control of property, there are local, um, these, these animosities that go back generations, all that's in play there. And I think we should imagine some of this as well um, 
with the Christian situation. And even the fact that there are different groups of Christians who disagree on doctrinal points, sometimes very strongly. And I just recently read an article that has come out arguing or looking at the role that these various Christian groups may have played in the persecution of other Christian groups. And so is this, is it not a two-dimensional Christians versus pagans? Is this a multi-dimensional model? And it's really fascinating. It has my mind thinking about a lot of the, uh, the accounts that we have. It makes sense of a lot of the accounts that we have. Um, so Cyprian uh, is really one of the most unlucky people. He comes in the middle of the third century, right at this time of this, of this great resurgence of patriotism and of nostalgia for the Roman Empire. But we have famine, we have wars on the Eastern Front, we have the beginnings of incursions of invasions, the economy's bad, and he steps into this, and then also not long after he becomes bishop, um, there's a plague, which is now remembered by history as the plague of Cyprian, even though he didn't start it, wasn't his fault, <laughs> it just happened while he was alive. So really you have a, a leader who steps into a, a horrible situation. And so you have people looking for scapegoats, and Cyprian himself, who is trying to keep the Christian community together while they're breaking apart. So it, you, have, you have the Christian and the non-Christian question. Then within Christianity itself, under the pressure of empire, you have people making sacrifices to the emperor to save their lives. You have people bribing someone to make it seem like they made sacrifices. Then you have people going to prison because they wouldn't sacrifice. And you have people dying because they wouldn't sacrifice. And then what happens is when the, when the persecution slows down, all these groups, except the dead people, all the other ones come back to church. And so now you have people sitting in church who have sacrificed to the Roman gods to save their lives or bribed someone to sacrifice for them, or they're sitting in church missing a leg with, with physical scarring from being tortured. They've had a family member killed and they're all sitting there together. And now they're supposed to take the Eucharist together as a sign of Christian unity. And I think a really good analogy is what's happening in a lot of Christian communities today with things like masks. Now, whatever people think about this, right? Just imagine you're sitting in a room worshiping and one person is anti-mask and one person has survived COVID and this person over here has lost a spouse to COVID. How does a person who's lost a spouse to COVID think about the person who doesn't wear a mask and refuses to get vaccinated? Now, whatever our opinions are like, that's the kind of tension that pastors and, and priests are dealing with right now that Cyprian was dealing with. How do you hold this together? And tremendous outward pressure from the non-Christian non world around them and tradition, uh, tremendous internal pressure trying to break apart. He's trying to hold all these things together. It's a, he has a very hard time of it and then eventually does die as a martyr. Yeah, I just remember reading the accounts as an undergrad and just thinking, man, this guy's life is just horrible. Like, nothing ever goes the right way, and it's over a period of time, and really nothing is in his control. And when he tries to exercise some control, it just doesn't work. So things just get compounded and compounded during that time. I do want to go back to one other thing you said that I think is fascinating, is you brought it back to the texts themselves. What sort of text are you speaking of? What are they like? And you also spoke to some of the cultural productions during the period, the music, the art. How are the text and these cultural products influencing, influencing the state of Christianity during this time period? Yeah, so the texts are one of our primary, I guess, survivals or relics of the time. Within the text, we have to read against the grain of the text sometimes to get to the next layer. So 
it's very common for people to read, say, let's say, Cyprian. Cyprian's writing on church unity. That's important. When you read his sermons, what you find out a lot of, you find more about what's actually going on. Because in the sermons, he's complaining about things. And he's talking about things that people are doing actually in, in the pew, so to speak. And that gives us another layer to this. And then we begin putting that together alongside the archaeology and the artistic, uh, this tremendous art that has survived from the North African Christian church because of the climate. Mosaics and, uh, and epigraphy and inscriptions, tremendous, much of which is completely unknown to the West because these are now places that are hard to get to. Um, Algeria, if you can go to Algeria, go to Algeria. Tremendous Roman sites where there will be no one except you on these sites. So there's, there's a lot of that kind of evidence we can put next to each other and begin to create what Clifford Geertz called a thick description, oh, a, a, I love that a more term. profound concept of what's going on. So not just what are they saying, but how does it look like? What does worship look like? What does everyday life look like for Christians? That's the kind of putting the evidence next to each other. And then we do have to do some creative looking into the gaps, but that's when you take evidence from other parts of the empire where maybe we have more evidence and try to fill in some of those gaps. And that's what I think is, is interesting for me is, is how can, I, how can I really create for someone what it would have looked like? It's, it's a project I've wanted to do for years to recreate an early Christian worship service, like a second century early Christian worship service. Not as we imagine it to be, but we actually know what it was. We know what it was like. And it's not like anything going on in Chattanooga on a Sunday. So be, that's the kind of stuff that, that I find interesting. So I, maybe I went off on a tangent there, but no, that's no, what no, gets no, me really great. interested and exciting. Yeah, I like how it just it gives a lot of flavor to Christianity during this period in a place that we don't technically think outside of someone like Augustine of Hippo, um, that there really was anything there that it was relevant or that it even provided an aspect to the larger narrative of the faith, of the story of Christianity. I really did appreciate that. Sumner, did you want to toss anything in here? Yeah, so I'm fascinated by this. So, so someone coming to someone who's not a, a historian, as you two are, it would seem then that what I'm picking up on is if it's an understanding of my Christian faith in a very different sense. So what would you say to either me or to a student or to a fellow historian of this is what I'm beginning to say I'm infusing into your understanding of Christian faith by using this sort of source as opposed to the ones that you're used to? I think what it provides, and it's very easy to demonstrate, is that there were more voices in Christian history than you get if you take a, a one semester survey of Christian history in college. And that a lot of the voices you may not get were very, very important in their own time. So yes, I get to Augustine in the book. And I I'm, I have a love-hate relationship with Augustine in that when I go to conferences about early Christianity, it feels like in every time slot there are five sections on Augustine. Now Augustine's important, but if you read his own letters, you know in his own time, People then weren't saying, oh, Augustine, he's one of the all-time great Christian thinkers. That's not what they were thinking at the time. They thought, this is our pastor, this is our bishop. And so it's bringing out the other voices, the people like Perpetua, Perpetua and Felicity, these martyrs whose, whose voices would have otherwise been lost to history and, and bringing them out. Perpetua actually, and I, I agree with the, the, his, the traditional reading of this, this is actually her voice in the text. The the first-person voice of female authors in the ancient world are very, very few. So it makes it a very important text. So it's bringing out a, a time in, in history when some of the recognized and revered leaders were women, 
when the church hierarchy was not on that trajectory? Like, what, what does that do to our understanding of Christian history? And it's bringing out these, these figures. You have these accounts of the martyrs where you have 17 or 20 people named or 24 people named. Well, who's this number 23 in the list? Is a guy named Secundulus who faced the wild beast, and that was it. His life is otherwise gone from history, except this one little notification. And when we do the, the, the quick surveys, we miss these little stories that I think can enrich my understanding of history, because I'm much more like Secundulus than I am like Augustine. Right? I'm, I'm a guy. I'm just a guy. And I'm not the bishop of whatever. And when the history of, of the world is told, my name is not going to be there unless someone digs down and finds out, you know, there was this middle-aged balding teacher at this high school who wrote this book about early African Christianity. That's kind of interesting because that's, those are the stories that I like to tell. So it's, it's bringing out those things. Survey courses are great, but they tend to be greatest hits courses. And so you tend to hit on the big ones and the most important ones. But even someone like an Augustine in his writings, he points to Tertullian. He points to Cyprian. They're incredibly influential for him but their voices can get swallowed up by his voice. Sure. Yeah, I really appreciate that, and I really like what you said there, especially since we begin AP World. I begin with that, you know, that mosaic, um, you know, that you're speaking of and those voices, and I remember just in that discussion with my students that day, what really came out of it was, it's interesting what historians and history tells us, for the for our for our guys and and I only teach sophomores for them it was well what happens to the role of women in the church during this period were were their lives so extraordinary that they're there and regular women just don't have a voice so it was fun with my guys to work through this exercise of what historians do tell us but also what texts don't tell us so reading between the lines and then as you were alluding to being sort of a garbage collector, going to art, going to archaeology, going to literature of the period, going to sermons to try to fill in the gaps. Well, if you can't find it in the written text somewhere, can you find it somewhere else? Can you find it in a painting, a mosaic, you know, something that's on a wall? Like, I find that's the exciting part to say, guys, just go be a garbage collector, go get as much evidence as possible, and then let's try to answer this question of, what happens to women and or were these women just so gigantic on the christian stage that they just sort of overshadow everybody else mm -hmm. Th that's yeah. a fascinating question actually does that did that cause you what what was the research you had to do in order to unearth these these mm -hmm. stories as opposed to typical research yeah and this is maybe also another part of the answer to your question Sumner. why do certain stories get told over and over again because the information on those stories is easily accessible mm. That's, I think that's part of the reason that, that certain parts of Christian history get told less because you have to learn harder languages to get to them. So the, the Mar so Perpetua, for example, this is a fairly uh, well-known text now that's available in, in some good updated English translations. The translations online are still kind of 100 years old and they can be difficult, but there are some new translations that gives a nice little introduction to it. So a lot of so the, the textual information there is fairly easily accessible and then what I did was I'm looking, I'm comparing that with what we know about the church hierarchy at that point. And so the, the two chapters on Perpetua, I have one that's the historical context for her life, and then I have one that's kind of the positive Perpetua, which is how is Perpetua and Felicitas, both of them, how are they models for Christian discipleship? And then the second chapter is, but there are also problems with Perpetua for the early third century church because she's not a bishop or a, or a member of the clergy. So what do they do with that? 
right? It's it's but that kind of information is is generally accessible, and some of the with Augustine and Cyprian that requires a little bit more digging, and um, some of these things are collected and are available online. A lot of the online stuff, the translations are older, but there are some new sources that are coming out. I think part of the problem is that in academia, translations in many places don't actually count. So if you do a volume of translations, like I did a, a volume of the translations, uh, the Martyrdom Accounts of Peter and Paul, it's, it's a 500 page volume. But if I were on the, the faculty at Harvard or Princeton, they wouldn't even count that toward tenure or promotion because translations don't count. But the, upside, the other side of that is translations bring text into the availability of for, for people to read. And this is what Martin Luther did with the translation of the Bible into German, is bringing it to the people. And it's bring the translations, they're now accessible so that people can access them if they want to. People who aren't specialists, mm -hmm. who can't go off and spend all the years learning Greek or Syriac or Latin, uh, but now they can read some of these things for themselves. And this is, there's more of a movement, even within Protestantism, even within kind of evangelical Protestantism, Wheat College in Illinois has been a center of this. They have a center for early, early Christianity, and they've been doing a lot of these translations and commentaries just to help, especially Protestants who have this big blind spot. It's kind of like in the tradition I grew up in, it was you had Paul, then Paul died, and then there was just kind of murkiness, and then Augustine comes, and then Augustine dies, and then it's just darkness until Martin Luther comes along. And they're trying to address a lot of those kind of hidden places with, look, there were Christians then too, and here's who they were, and here's how they lived their lives, and here's what we can learn from them. So there is a, a move in that direction to make the, the sources themselves more widely available. And that's part of what I really want to do with this book as well. That's why I structured it the way I have, so that people without any kind of background can come to it and hopefully access the material in a way that can be meaningful for them. I want to take a quick break at that point, but when we come back, I want to ask about how you would bring this to students and the way in which students can both use this, but also the method that you're asking them to think about. How do you search out these voices, et cetera? We'll return shortly to our discussion with Dr. David Eastman and Dr. Tsao Musumeci, focused on David's recently published book, on the history of Christianity in North Africa, as well as on how he and other faculty in our Bible department see their role in helping students pursue an academic study of faith. For decades, Macaulay's Bible department has been an important part of challenging our young men to think deeply about questions in their lives. How are we to live? What responsibilities do we have to others in our community and world? What are the core moral principles we might pursue to bring meaning and relevance to our lives? To have individuals like David and Sal and others on our faculty who have done extensive research along these very lines of thought deeply enriches our students' understanding. It allows pursuit of these questions in a historical context, drawing upon the greatest thinkers and leaders across the human experience. Their ability to relate these complex ideas with engaging stories and vivid details makes the ideas come alive, a critically important element in teaching the 21st century teenager. Thanks for listening to this podcast and to all the podcasts in this series of discussions with Macaulay teachers from each of our departments. As always, if you have any comments or questions about this podcast or any others, please drop us a note at info at macaulay.org. That's info at macaulay.org. Now let's return to the fascinating discussion with Drs. Eastman and Musumeci.
So David, before the break, we talked about some of the, the, the ways in which you were trying to bring new voices into the study of Christianity, recognize how historians might get at those voices. Talk to me a little bit about how you want this used in classes. How would you bring this book into either your class or other class? And Sal, I want to eventually get to you because you've mentioned you've used this directly in your class. Yeah, so part of it for me is, is getting to the questions that some of these figures raise. I do think it's important for some of our students just to hear the fact that Africa was really important for Christian history because they're completely unaware of this. And then particularly for some of our students, um, some of my African-American students, I find them, they really come alive in this. They're thinking, wait a minute, this is, a, this is, a, this is part of the, the voice that I have in the history, which is very important to make them understand that they're, yeah, they're right there at the center of the table. Uh, but with one quick example, I, I use the chapter where I talk about Augustine versus Pelagius on the issue of free will versus determinism and different theologies of God, and I point out this is a larger philosophical question. How much free will do we have in life? Because then I begin thinking about, oh, wait a minute, how much of this do I actually control? Does that mean I have free will or not? And that gets us into a broader, which is really where I want to go. In a New Testament class, I use this in the context of talking about Paul. I get to the deeper conversation with them, which is where does a theological concept like God's love and God's foreknowledge or not, where does that play out in everyday life? And even students who have no Christian faith at all, I tell them, this is, we're talking about something broader here. And I often tell them in New Testament, whether you are Christian or not, I want you to understand the importance, the implications, the applications of these ideas. And that's a place I can really dig into that. And I, a lot of them, their, their brains really start spinning and they begin thinking about categories they haven't before and maybe asking questions they haven't before. And I hope, my, my secret goal is it gives them greater empathy for people who haven't had all those conditions in place to allow them the same opportunities. That maybe we look at look at other people around us in different kinds of ways and understand that maybe they didn't choose that. I'm not better than they are because I'm here and they're there or vice versa. But there are other forces that at work here. That's really interesting actually because it seems to me that's beginning to uncover a much deeper understanding of faith itself. Yes. Or what is the goal of faith? What are we trying to do there? And how does that relate to other people around us? Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I think that's, that's one of the things that when we think about Jesus as kind of this, this elevated glowing figure who just floated along the ground, we miss so much of what the gospels say about Jesus is he was a very literally like gritty guy who was in, in the fight with people on the ground, entering into their condition and understanding where they're coming from. And whatever people take away from Jesus, I hope they understand, like, that's who he was. He was not out. He wasn't, um, I guess, making friends with only the best and the brightest. He wasn't separating himself. He was right there in the midst of the people. And that's, um, that's an important lesson to take away from, from I think, from the, from the Gospels. But I think it also invites us, therefore, to put ourselves in the middle of our human condition. And how do we respond as people of faith or people of not faith, those students who have no religious faith? Where do we put ourselves in the world? And how do we think about the people around us? And what is our responsibility to them? Those are much bigger questions. They're the center of faith, but they're also questions that in some ways transcend faith, individual faith, I guess you could say. That's also really interesting to me because the way you've described the book as a way of getting outside of the typical survey is essentially the same idea. That yes. That the study of Christianity can fall into a trap of just being sort of highlights yes. and almost cliche doctrines, though the doctrines are important, and we're going to miss the sort of personal humanity within all of it. Yes, yes. 
That's really interesting. So you've used, in fact, the first time I, I talked to you, you used part of this text in a class, right? And you re made reference to it. Talk a little bit about what that experience was like. Yeah, so part of it was um, to get the students thinking about how you can make um, such larger implications or speak to larger implications from a really, really small source or from like one instance, right? Um, so to get kids thinking about the role of women in the church and the larger narrative, not only in Christianity, but what role did women play in sort of the origin and spread of Islam or what did it look like in Buddhism or what does it look like in the East? So using this was a really good idea, um, especially as, you know, when you hear it first, the stories are so bizarre. They're so strange to anything. We've never been persecuted, right? I've never gone up against a leopard. You know, I've never been chained to anything and have a leopard come at me. So a lot of these concepts are formed, but to get them sort of in David's mindset about how do you originate an idea from this? How does a student attack a question to further investigate this idea of what was the voice of women like? Why don't they have more of the voice? Could they write? Um, why do the exceptional ones? Did they happen to be married to exceptional men and therefore they're more inclined to be in the record? How do these come into place? Is there an editor who tends to gather the lives of women and there's this whole hey, you know, hagiography behind it? You know, how this all comes into play. And it's fun to watch our guys, because I guess that's really what we're getting at here, is these critical thinking skills. I guess some would refer to them as soft skills, right? But really getting at the idea, okay, how is it that I can approach this, not only to better understand it, but in order to communicate to my teacher who's standing right in front of me, that one, I understand what I just looked at and what I just read. Two, I'm using evidence to back it up. And then three, I disagree with my peer right next to me, and here's why I disagree with that person. So it's fun to get them in a dialogue with each other, but also to say David didn't start his research with the book already finished. He had an idea. He had a passion. And I do commend you. Your book is incredibly reading, uh, readable from start to finish. So while the expert can use it, I think it does a great justice for the rest of us who are really just interested in this idea of Christianity in North Africa. Um, and I do want to get to the question about Tertullian and Hippo and why you put them at the end, because I think that's also fascinating. But I think just letting our guys know that David didn't just start with the book in mind. He doesn't just sit down one day and pop off a book, a multiple chapter book. A lot of thought goes into this, a lot of wrestling. And, and I want our guys to wrestle with this as well. There are no easy answers. And I feel that the earlier they could get this in their sophomore year, talking with Dr. Ritchie about what they're gonna have to do in AP US history, developing those skills. So that way in senior year, if they take an upper level elective with David or they hop into your philosophy class, that same sort of reasoning process, that same sort of skills is not only beneficial here at Macaulay, but their next four years in undergrad and also just in life in general, the ability to interact, disagree, to have those conversations and provide evidence. I, I think that's incredibly important. It is remarkable, and, and just from our conversations, David, it sounds like you had that in mind as you were writing this. It wasn't just research to sort of unearth it, the thought process of what, what it was going to be used for, how this was going to be seen. Yes, and because it really did begin with, with the classroom setting. Right, so this is a book that came out of the classroom setting and trying to communicate. I had, I had a bishop in my first class who's the bishop, he's the abbey of a monastery that goes back to the 4th century in the Egyptian desert. Wow. And in the, in the Orthodox East, they hate Augustine. They hate Augustine because of his doctrine of predestination. And so I have this abbot sitting in front of me, who's a very large man, also dressed like a Coptic 
Abbott, who's very intimidating, and I had to try <laughs> to convince him that Augusta matters for him too. And that's that's really where it began, is that, that kind of conversational model. And that's why I thought it would it would work not in long chapters, because those are not helpful, I think, but breaking it up in, into bite-sized chunks. And um, but, but as you say, Sal, this, is, this process is long, and I tell students all the time, no matter how far you go in academia, there will never be a time that you're not editing and other people aren't editing your work. So good, ed- good writing is good editing. And there's always gonna be someone looking over your shoulder and you write a book, you send it off and you're gonna get feedback that you may or may not want. But that's part of the writing process too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also important for them to see. You don't just, I don't just, I'm gonna write this the night before and turn it in. No, there's a process here. Sure. Yeah. So David, I do have to ask you, right? So you saved two of my all-time favorites. So why did you, um, you know, knowing my, you know, sort of what I know and how I've interacted with the story of Christianity in the past, why is it that you saved Augustine of Hippo to the end of your text? Well, the easy answer is that's the chronology. So he comes that way chronologically. So there's that. The other thing is Augustine is really the last man of antiquity. I think most historians would agree with this. He's the last figure that, who seems to have more in common with the earlier centuries than what follows, certainly in North Africa. Augustine is dying. He's on his deathbed when the Vandals are attacking and overrunning his city. He, pro- he may die of starvation because the city is being starved out by the Vandals. Once the Vandals arrive in North Africa, it completely changes the historical context there. But uh, in terms of his rhetorical training, he really looks backward more than forward. And his work is the culmination of the centuries that have come before. And the questions he's dealing with about the concept of God that he's dealing with, you can't get there without Tertullian dealing with what Tertullian has dealt with. And without some of the questions Cyprian deals with the church, with church unity, and, and, and Cyprian's questions aren't totally answered, and so you get the fourth section of the book, the Donatus Controversy, and that's never settled. And so here comes, here comes Augustine. Augustine is alive, he's born in 354, 380 is when Christianity becomes the official religion of the empire. He sees that change, but he's living in a region where there's a divided church. And so that's, it's really interesting how that impacts how he negotiates heresy and orthodoxy, and that feeds into his own explorations of youth and the different philosophical traditions, and then eventually his debate with Pelagius over free will. He really is a man of his, of his time. Um, of his own context, and early African Christianity, it builds toward Augustine in some ways, but it doesn't stop there. And that's why I have this, again, the love-hate with Augustine. He's an important figure. He's not a point. He's not the end of the paragraph. He's kind of the end of antiquity in North Africa, but the conversation continues well beyond him on the continent, because he has a lot of engagement with Rome, and even his ideas are questioned right after his death. Uh, the councils in in, in Orange and in, in Southern France, they're asking questions about Augustine. Sure. So he's a really important figure. He kind of marks the end of antiquity in this region of the world, but he really launches Christianity into other questions which are going to come back at the time of the Reformation and have still never been resolved. Yeah, you you do a, uh, I mean, it, it it's a great ending to the text in the sense that you take this massive figure who does straddle the classical world as well as the medieval world and and he is torn in both directions you could swing him either way in that discussion and you make him a credit incredibly approachable and yet you still do justice with regard to how influential he is 
I understand the, you know, the issue of chronology. How was it in writing that, you know, because you are doing something that's really so big. And like you alluded to earlier, you're distilling it into so few pages, the importance of who he is and how he's just a point in this larger discussion. How does that come out in the writing? Yeah, you really have to pick what I'm going to talk about, what I'm not going to talk about. And so there's one of the chapters is I, I call him Augustine Theologian of the West, and I pick a couple of his major ideas. So I look at his doctrine of original sin. I look at his city of God, which in his mind, if you asked him, what's the greatest thing you ever wrote? He would say city of God, which poses the really interesting question about the kingdom of God on this earth versus the kingdom of God above, which I would say is still a question with which some Christians are wrestling today. And, and then the, I think the, the, the free will Pelagius thing is still so much a part of the Christian tradition that that got its own chapter. But there's so much about Augustine that there isn't time to say. So it's really figuring out how can I give the reader an indication of some of the important things Augustine said without losing them in the detail. And it's always that, that selection process and trying to figure out how deep to go so that they have a sense of what's going on here. But at this point, I'm going to lose them. What's that point? It's really trying to figure out where that point is. And that's, that's often the, the challenge. Writing for an academic audience, there's no point. You just keep going. And the fact if you can say things that are so obscure, people don't understand it, they're going to assume you're brilliant. But that's not how academic writing works when you're trying to write for a broader audience. So really, you, it, was, it was a wrestling with that. There's so much more I could say about Augustine, but what do I think people need to know most? Uh, the chapter on, uh, on his life and times, uh, just uh, uh, an indication here, if you've not read Augustine's Confessions, I highly commend them to mm -hmm. you. It's a fascinating work of introspective autobiography. The last couple chapters, he goes into, into his interpretation of Genesis and allegory. That gets a little thick, so you may want to leave books 9, 10, and 11 to the side <laughs> for now. But the first part, his, their explorations of his youth and, and wrestling with his own sense of identity is, I think, applicable to every teenager and undergraduate student I've ever met. So he's really approachable in that way. When you come at him through the autobiography, if you look at him as this mountain of theology, it's intimidating. But he was once a young guy trying to figure out he had, an un, he had a pagan father and a Christian mother who would not leave him alone. And he's trying to figure out how to negotiate that. And he has all kinds of dreams and aspirations. And where does God fit into that or not? His story is a story of so many of us. And I find that entry point makes it more accessible than to see, well, why might he care about certain questions more than others? Yeah, and, and I guess that kept popping up inside my head. Go with the familiar and then get to the unfamiliar. And yet mm -hmm. you went with the unfamiliar and arrived at the unfamiliar with regard to chronology. So That, that probably produces my last question then for you, David. What you've just described seems to be almost a philosophy of education, not just biblical education, that certainly is true, and not just historical education, but a philosophy that you have of what are you trying to do with the students under your care maybe kind of summarize how does the book do that how do you do that in a daily experience what are you trying to do with these young men in your bible classes yeah i think all of us in the bible department share the conviction that whether a student is a person of faith or not that culturally they need to have a, an understanding of what's in the bible because that's that is one of the dominant narratives in our society and we say that i say this all the time whether you're christian or not you need to understand this because people who are making decisions about your life do care about these texts and it's, it's a piece of cultural competence. Um, I talked about thick description earlier, and I, I use some of this theory in class to help 
put yourself in another worldview. Maybe it's not your worldview, but imagine if this were your worldview. How might this impact the way you see the world? And so with the New Testament, we want them to understand, here are some traditional Christian doctrines, but here's also why they matter. That's why the ethics course can be so powerful, such a powerful experience for students is, how does our understanding of anthropology, how does the Christian understanding of anthropology impact ethics? If everyone's created every individual person in the image of God, that must impact our ethics. How does that happen? So there's the connection there. I, I don't think any of us give tests on, give me five points about the Christian doctrine of God. None of us give those kinds of tests because that's not really ultimately the point. It's, it's the general kind of cultural competence, but also as I tell the guys, I want you to be active participants in the conversations that are happening around you, not just listeners. And basic biblical competence is almost a necessity still in this country to be a, a part of those conversations. So when someone who's opposite side of you on whatever the issue is, when they say, well, the Bible says this, can you enter into that conversation in an intelligent way and think through that with them? If you can't, you're probably not going to be part of the conversation. So I think a lot of what we're trying to do is prepare guys for that. And, and along the way, we, we destabilize, hopefully in a helpful way. But that's part of what education is. is I think I know this, but why do I know that? And it's not always, it's not, for me, it's never about making someone Christian or unmaking them Christian. But, okay, you assume this is true. Why do you assume it's true? Is that a good assumption? And try to do it in a, in a space that's safe, uh, intellectually safe but also uh, makes them come out thinking, maybe I don't know as much as I thought I knew. Maybe I don't understand my own tradition as well as I thought I did. And for some of them, that drives them to further exploration. For some of them who are not in the Christian tradition, it's like, oh, okay, I know more about Christians now, and that's fine. Um, but it's, you know, we never, there are no altar calls in our classes, or we don't do, we don't do that here. But, um, but we are committed to taking something that for many of them is increasingly foreign, Biblical literacy among society as a whole is probably at an all-time low. This is completely foreign territory for many of them. How do we give them the lay of the land and point them in some directions to think about and, and see where that conversation might go? Well, it's amazing to watch because both this book and what I watched in the two of you as you move through is saying, here are some very important topics to understand. Here's important people. Here's important doctrines to understand. We need you to get that but we also need you to learn how to ask questions about it and what is the evidence you're going to produce and how do you have those conversations. And I see that every day in both your classes. Thank you all for, for being here. Really appreciate the insights and congratulations on your book. Well, thank you. Yeah, congrats. Thanks for thank having me. Thank you for the conversation.